I see that we have over 130 participants online. I, I assume that's going to increase in number, and this will be watched uh, uh, in a recorded version as well. Good morning to the, our Grand Rounds, special Grand Rounds presentation. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Fink for uh, allowing us to uh, change uh, one of the surgical Grand Rounds. Uh, we'll make sure we pay her back so that uh, our colleagues in surgery can uh, also give their, their presentations. But today we have a combined Grand Rounds between uh, pediatrics uh, and pediatrics uh, infectious diseases, as well as anesthesiology. I think you'll find this uh, very instructive to you. And, and it, of course, in the era of COVID, this is what everyone is talking about. Um, uh, again, I want to make sure that uh, everyone knows that uh, we are prepared. Uh, we are ready. Uh, be not afraid. It is a very serious problem, of course, and, and it does touch each one of us in, in many, many ways. Um, I want to uh, uh, express uh, condolences to those families that, that have lost loved ones as a result of COVID-19. Um, we have been touched here in, in Connecticut. We have been touched here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center with, uh, with uh, a, a parent of, of one of our uh, members of our team. And, 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 you know, that is something that makes it very real for, for all of us. Uh, so again, be safe, be not afraid, take care of each other, and we'll, we'll pull through this. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, uh, introduce uh, the, the first speaker, and then Dr. Fink will introduce our second speaker. First one is uh, Dr. John Schreiber. Uh, John is, uh, is a, uh, an outstanding uh, member of the infectious disease, pediatric infectious disease community. And, uh, and this is the, the, my, my luck that uh, John, uh, who is a, a seasoned professional uh, physician executive uh, researcher, uh, happened to uh, uh, call me a few months ago. He said, uh, I'm available. Uh, if you need, um, I'm partially retired and, and, you know, this will be a fun thing to do. I think little did John know that, uh, that his service would be called for, uh, for the, uh, the, you know, the pandemic of a hundred years. And, uh, and I, I'm so uh, glad that I have somebody with his qualifications. Uh, John was uh, trained in, uh, in, in pediatrics at Boston Children's and in pediatric infectious disease at Boston Children's. Uh, then he uh, had a, 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 you know, incredibly well-funded research at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland before moving on to, uh, to the more physician executive roles as chair of the Department of Pediatrics and, uh, and physician-in-chief in, at the University of Minnesota, uh, where he served uh, exemplary, uh, helping build their children's hospital. And then he moved on to Boston, where he was the chair of pediatrics and also the chief medical officer at, at, at uh, uh, at Tufts University uh, uh, before moving back to uh, uh, Massachusetts to uh, Bay State where he was their chief medical officer for the whole system uh, before retiring and doing many other things. John's uh, CV is enormous. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time in it. Uh, it's really impressive. And I'm just so delighted that he is here with us and we'll be presenting, on, uh, we'll be presenting uh, this morning on the topic of um, uh, COVID-19 on the, on the science uh, component to this. Uh, he has been doing a number of webinars, and so uh, many of you in the community have seen them, and uh, they're all recorded, available for you, and, uh, and John will, um, I'm sure, will give us a, a very detailed update. Uh, I will then um, come back, and then Dr. Fink, uh, our Surgeon-in-Chief and, and, and colleague-in-arms, will, will do the introduction of our, uh, our anesthesiologist, uh, who will, uh, Christina Davila, who will present a, a very important view on, on, on how anesthesiologists are dealing with, with this uh, uh, infection. So, John, I'll pass it on to you, and then we'll have uh, some time for questions at the end. Thank you. Thank you, Juan, uh, for your very gracious introduction. I hope everyone can hear me 
Um, I do appreciate uh, being at Connecticut Children's uh, with a terrific team. It's unfortunate we have some challenges, uh, but we'll get through them, as Juan said. And my goal today is really, um, this is a series of talks, I hope. Uh, today, I'm not going to talk about how um, the various uh, CDC criteria for prevention and this and that. I want to focus on the virus. And, uh, you know, we are not each other's enemy. The virus is our enemy. And how... Uh, how do we learn about that and approach it from understanding this particular pathogen? And it's a very interesting pathogen. Um, let's see if we can. Uh, I have no disclosures, um, and those are the goals uh, for today. Now, uh, I, this is the map I put in uh, over the weekend. I made this talk, and uh, unfortunately, um, it's moving so quickly in the United States. It's clearly in log phase. It's like Italy approximately four weeks ago. Uh, not a good place to be. Um, this is the map from the 21st. I just uh, lifted it out of ABC News, but it's an adaption of the Hopkins map. And uh, Hopkins doesn't let you download it. ABC did. So I did that. And this is today's. Um, and uh, it's frightening. Uh, that's, uh, you know, we're in log phase. Those are, that's what we know. This is just what we're testing. Uh, and it's probably much more than that. So, so we have a problem in the United States. And I think the way to begin to approach the problem is to understand a little bit more as we can about the virus that's causing this problem. Now, uh, the promising thing, and to Juan's point, uh, epidemics end. We will get through this. And uh, you can see China, which is the curve that's flat now, uh, they had their log phase earlier on in February, and they were able, with fairly draconian social isolation and prevention of travel and following up contacts and testing, <laughs> to flatten that curve. And they've had very few new cases except importation from other countries. Unfortunately, the other locations would be us in Europe uh, hitting straight up. Um, so, but it is possible uh, to bend that curve. And, and I think that's a very important thing uh, to understand. You bend that curve and then the cases trickle in and you can manage it better. Now the basics, um, COVID-19 is a, a very interesting virus. It's an envelope single strand RNA virus. It's not native to humans. We have no innate immunity um, and this has been a problem. Uh, and I'll talk about that. It's probably a bat coronavirus, uh, causes colds and pneumonia in bats and jumped to humans in a market that sold bats for food in China. Uh, and so um, it, it is not native to humans and it is adapting quickly uh, to cause serious disease in humans. Interestingly, it does adhere to cells in the nasopharynx, but appears to have a lung tropism. And that's different from a lot of other URI type coronaviruses, you know, the common cold type things. And we think it binds to the ACE2 receptor in lower lungs. Um, and uh, that, that's also new data and it's interesting. We're not sure what to do with that yet. Um, this virus replicates very rapidly. This is a single cell. It's an electron micrograph from the NIH, and it seizes the control of the machinery of the cell to make its own proteins and then assembles them into virions. This is a single cell about to burst. And one of the challenges with this virus, particularly in those who are ill, it's very high titer. So droplets tend to be very infectious and it can be very contagious in the height of the illness. You have a lot of virions. Transmission. It's transmitted primarily by respiratory droplets, and that's someone in close proximity who's coughing uh, and spreading the droplets in the air. 
However, there are some data to suggest it can be airborne in certain circumstances. You know, if the air is dry and it's able to move around. So there's some uncertainty about that, but it does provide a little extra caution for us. And it's why the N95s, should you have very close contact, ends up being uh, important if you're in the room and there's aerosolization going on with intubation and other things like that. Contact also appears to be a form of contagion. It lives on smooth surfaces about three days and you touch the surface where a droplet fell, rub your eyes uh, or, or put it in your mouth and uh, you will get infected. Interestingly, again, it's a strange organism. It doesn't like copper. So if it falls on copper surfaces, it dies within several hours. Nobody understands that. It's probably a hint of something, um, but we do not get that. On paper and fabric, on the newspaper that comes in, it lasts about a day. Uh, and it's an issue that way. And so however you put it aside for a day, um, it will no longer be infectious. Um, and then outside uh, where there's UV light, it doesn't survive very well at all. It lives a few hours. And uh, one of the things they're suggesting as packages are delivered is just to leave them outside in the sun for a few hours before you open them. And then that avoids the necessity for having to rub everything down and sterilize it. It's also excreted in feces. And I'm gonna show you that that's a problem in children. And so fecal oral transmission apparently does occur. The incubation average time to illness after exposure is five days, but uh, cases have shown up up to 14 days after exposure, but 97% of people exposed will have symptoms by day 11. So it's a small window that gives us a great opportunity to manage that when you understand the incubation period that allows you to manage exposure uh, and quarantines better. It's probably infectious prior to the symptoms, although it's unclear if those people actually had some minor symptoms and didn't realize it. But before the fulminant cough, shortness of breath, you're probably infectious prior to that, but it's unclear how long that is. The adult clinical presentation uh, is also interesting. It's very age dependent. More than 90% get fever. If you have an afebrile URI, you probably don't have COVID. Now that's not always true, obviously 10%, but in general. It's a dry cough, sore throat, shortness of breath, illness, chills, aches, fatigue that resemble influenza. And URI symptoms in adults are minor complaints. It's not the prominent complaint. Sometimes there are none. So it's a little different. Um, presentation than influenza, for example, some subtle differences. Children apparently get infected like adults, but it's a milder disease. It can be asymptomatic and may mimic common URIs, fever, runny nose, cough. There's also gastroenteritis, vomiting, diarrhea component in some children. And again, unclear how many. A lot of these data are from China and they're spotty. Um, only a very small percentage become ill enough for hospitalization, and this has been borne out in the United States too. Heather Torrey just emailed um, myself and Juan this morning. She has connections at Seattle Children's, and they continue to see a very small number hospitalized, you know, zero to one at any one time. And so um, it is not a large percentage that become ill enough for hospitalization. The Chinese data I was able to find uh, one series, 13 out of over 2,000 positive children uh, ended up needing to be hospitalized, but the vast majority were either asymptomatic, mild, or moderate disease and were managed in the ambulatory arena. So it is a very different disease in children and a key 
thing about this pathogen. Now, if you think about chickenpox and some of the other viruses we used to know, we always knew that chickenpox was relatively mild in most children, not all. Some got very sick, but not so good in adults. But there was so much herd immunity to it that it didn't burn through the adult population. So it's possible that other viruses have behaved similarly. It's just in this one, since it's so new to humans, um, adults have no immunity whatsoever. So um, it, it may explain some of the differences in the age-dependent presentation. Now, duration of excretion is important for us. You're going to manage these kids, and you can see this is nasopharyngeal excretion. It's data from China. It's a small number. It's kind of what we got right now. And this is RT-PCR measuring uh, viral RNA. And you can see that uh, over about a week, uh, you have very little nasopharyngeal excretion, one or two kids, but it really fell off pretty quickly by day nine. That's in contrast to rectal. Um, they did rectal swabs for RT-PCR. Now, we don't know if these are viable virions, but we do know it's viral RNA. And there's prolonged fecal excretion. This is something we're going to need to keep watch on. And kids who probably go home, uh, we do have some who are COVID-infected, we're going to need to make sure that there is um, good home hygiene probably at least several weeks um, after they're discharged in terms of fecal excretion. Mortality rates um, vary by age and location. Um, and uh, what I was able to really winnow out, China's overall mortality rate appears to be, have been around 3%, and that's more than 10 to 20 times influenza. Italy is having a horrendous mortality rate. It is unclear whether that is because of an elderly population, smokers, or just that their medical system is overwhelmed and they're unable to provide adequate care to the elderly who are now getting sick. So far in the United States, we're running around a 1% mortality, but you know we don't really know um, uh, whether that's, maybe it's lower because we're not testing enough. Um, it, it's hard to know. 80% um, of all deaths worldwide are 65 and above. It's a remarkable um, distinction for this particular virus. And again, I think represents the complete lack of herd immunity um, in uh, populations and, uh, against coronavirus, uh, this coronavirus. By age, the mortality are remarkable. In China, a huge country of 1.3 billion people with thousands of cases, there were no deaths in the zero to nine age group. That's being borne out in Europe as well. In the 10 to 19 age group, there were a very little mortality. We, we have lost a kid in the United States and that you can count them on one hand. It's not zero, it's very low. And that's true all the way up to around age 40 to 49. However, when you hit the 50s, um, you begin to hit the 10 times influenza mortality rate. The 60s, uh, say 65, is around a 5% mortality. That's remarkable and very high and uh, quite higher than any influenza uh, season that we have seen. 70s uh, to around 80, it's an 8% mortality if you get it. And 80 and above, it's a 15% mortality, a remarkable remarkably high mortality figure. Uh, for context, smallpox was around a 30% mortality um, at the time when we did prior to immunization. So um, this is about half the mortality of smallpox for the elderly. It's quite high. 
the United States mortality, I got this from the CDC. It's already out of date, but it's what they posted. Um, I haven't seen a new one yet. Again, uh, age 85, really high mortality rate. Um, zero to 19, the United States, I think there's one 14-year-old now, but it's close to zero. Um, and uh, again, only 1% of the hospitalizations are in the zero to 19 age group. And that's borne out in the Seattle Children's Experience to date. Uh, they have not had a um, particularly high number of inpatients. Certainly the ambulatory world is quite busy for them, but not inpatients. The immunology of infection is a black box, but I can tell you what we do know so far. There's a variety of hypotheses as to why the elderly develop such severe pneumonia. And uh, T cells develop immune senescence. The killer T cells don't work as well. There appears to be a dysregulation of cytokines and a cytokine storm in some of the very ill elderly who don't make it. And it's unclear why that is happening. Um, elderly have lower amounts of the ACE2 receptor in the lungs, and maybe that yields um, a dysregulation in the immune response. Uh, it's not known. So uh, active uh, uh, research going on, remarkably, uh, there's really only one case report from China so far in Nature Medicine that actually tracks the immunity in an individual who was ill. And by day seven, their antibodies made against the virus. The IgM response was late, actually. It didn't come to day, day seven or eight. IgG kicked in, and by day 20, there were high titers of antibody. CD4 and CD8 T cells were activated, as were NK cells. And this 47-year-old person had very minor illness and very low level of cytokines. They measured them. And is that the reason it was mild illness? To date, we still don't know. But we do know that by day 20, there are high titers of antibody, and we'll talk about that um, in a second. Remarkably, there are a few other little um, hints, uh, not a lot of um, larger studies uh, looking at the immune response to this virus yet. They're in process. Treatment. There are no good randomized controlled trials available. Um, there's some potential therapies. I'll focus on two of them. Chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. Um, chloroquine's interesting. It increases endosomal pH, and the virus can't infuse to the cell and seize the machinery as well. And the, the, so viral entry is inhibited, and then uh, that prevents viral replication. And we all know those, particularly in rheumatology and the other fields, that chloroquine derivatives are anti-inflammatory and that may also help or downregulate the cytokine response. There is a small, not very good, French hydro, hydroxychloroquine study. And by the way, hydroxychloroquine is less toxic. That's why it's used. It had 20 patients, it was open label, not randomized, and they found that it reduced viral load and duration of carriage, um, and they added azithromycin, which they felt uh, made viral elimination more rapid. But um, you know, there's not a good randomized controlled treatment trial that's available yet. This is anecdotal, really. Chloroquine, however, is now used in China routinely for treatment. They give 500 milligrams BID for 10 days. And a lot of the manufacturing of chloroquine is in China, so they have access. Treatment, um, in terms of antivirals, uh, uh, remdesivir, uh, remdesivir um, is an antiviral that inhibits RNA-dependent polymerase from coronaviruses, so they can't replicate. They need that polymerase. And there are active Chinese and NIH randomized phase three clinical trials in progress. The results, I've been told, are promising. 
the president's told us the results are promising. Um, no one's seen the data. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it used to be available two days ago for compassionate use uh, from Gilead. And as of yesterday, it's no longer available for compassionate use. So as far as I know, we can't get it. Now, these are in vitro titers. I heard a noise, probably um, it's time, my time. I only have a couple more slides. If you look at the top, uh, that's the inhibition of replication of the virus, and that's remdesivir. And chloroquine, interestingly, also um, inhibits viral replication. And this is a virus that were grown in cells, and then you measure the amount of cytotoxicity, and that's the measure of viral replication. Monoclonal antibodies, um, a variety, are being made, no data. Serum from convalescent patients. There's a large Johns Hopkins trial led by Arturo Casadevall, actually, uh, who um, I know well. It's a multi-center clinical trial um, using old-fashioned serum from convalescent patients who I mentioned to make antibody by day 20. You should note that passive immunotherapy historically works much better to prevent disease than to cure existing infections. And it's my belief that the serum may actually be more useful in the prevention of infections. IVIG is not recommended in adults and probably, there are no data and probably not recommended in children at this time. There are no antibodies in it to this uh, organism. Active immunization um, in process, there are multiple possibilities. It could be kill whole virus vaccine. There's some nervousness about that. The RSV experience with that kind of vaccine did not work well. They're partial virus, uh, uh, killed partial virus vaccines, recombinant protein vaccines, and attenuated live virus. All of these are being explored. But the challenges are we don't understand the correlates of immunity yet, and you don't want to do harm with a vaccine. And the elderly give poor vaccine responses. They don't make good immune responses to many vaccines. So, you know, I, I, this is a year away, unfortunately. This is not going to happen quickly. Uh, current goal is mitigation. Containment is not possible uh, in the United States. So if we can flatten the curve with all of the things we're doing, you are, we are the health system. We know that we're in red right now. If we can push that down, we can manage the capacity. Um, and I know there's some debate in government about that, but to me, there's no debate. Um, if we do nothing, these are the data, these are the various scenarios that were pre pre presented to the cabinet, as far as I can tell. I think Tony Fauci presented these. If we do nothing or do little, uh, there'll be about 100 million total infections, 10 million at the same time, about a million to 2 million deaths, and 360,000 ICU cases all at the same time. Um, okay, if we do the current interventions that we're in, social distancing, getting supplies back to the hospitals better, and four shutdowns and hot areas, we're going to have around four and a half million at the peak and about 450,000 deaths, maybe less. Uh, again, about 10 times the number of deaths in a bad flu season. Aggressive intervention that you're seeing in China, mandatory shutdowns, shelter in place of large populations with aggressive enforcement that we may not be able to do in this country. Uh, about three million at the peak and 300,000 deaths or less if we did that in the United States starting today. So, um, you know, we're in a little bit of a pickle, and uh, I think we can all look in the middle one. That's probably where we're going to be if we continue to do our current uh, fairly strong interventions. Silver linings. We're going to get through this. As uh, Juan said, the Chinese success at bending the curve is very encouraging. And by the way, Hong Kong and Singapore have done the same thing. 
Most children don't get very sick. The mortality rate in children is very, very low. We are blessed with this particular pandemic being pediatricians. Our hospital in Picky will probably not be inundated with pediatric cases on the inpatient side. I believe our biggest tasks are going to be taking care of our current patients and any sick COVID patients in a new model because we can't bring them in. We need them to shelter in place. So we have some innovations and in coming talks, probably next week, uh, we will talk about that. We need to assist our pediatric practices and families in the community as we get through this. We're going to need to render aid to our adult health system partners who will be inundated, and we need to keep our providers and staff safe. Uh, thank you very much for asking me to speak today, and I know we have another speaker coming up now. Thank you, uh, John, for, for a great presentation. Uh, we'll leave the questions uh, for the, uh, the end. If you can just send them to us, we'll, uh, and we'll, we'll read them at the end. I'm going to ask Dr. Fink to introduce Dr. Christina Biello as uh, our next speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Schreiber, thank you for a sobering uh, lecture, but it's always good to uh, work with the facts and understand what we're up against. I, wanted, I do want to take a moment to um, thank everybody that's really led this effort in trying to keep Connecticut children safe and um, at the best possible uh, care and treatment. Uh, want Dr. Salazar and his staff, as well as EMT, and most importantly, the perioperative staff. Um, they are truly on the front lines for some of these invasive procedures, especially when um, children and patients are critically ill. Um, we've had to shift and be nimble. So uh, a real shout out to Dr. Banani, Mary McLaughlin, Stacey Elliott, Kevin Gonzalez for helping us, and all the division chiefs for helping us react and keep the staff and children um, stay safe. With that said, I'd like to introduce Dr. Biello. Dr. Biello has been a member of Connecticut Children's uh, Pediatric Anesthesiology staff since 2010. She comes to us from New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, did her residency at UConn and her pediatric fellowship mm -hmm. at Yale. She's definitely a go-to in the operating room, especially uh, with some of our complex patients. Um, Dr. Biello, thank you for coming today to talk about some of the things that you guys are facing on the front lines. Thank you, Chris. So I was asked to um, speak briefly about the unique issues that my anesthesia colleagues face in the operating room, um, as well as some of the recommendations for protecting ourselves and minimizing the risk of transmission of coronavirus in our, um, in our unique setting. So very recently, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, along with the Anesthesia uh, Patient Safety Foundation, released a statement supporting the recommendations from the CDC to halt um, elective surgical diagnostic and interventional procedures. However, we understand that urgency of procedures exist along a continuum and some procedures are in fact um, time sensitive. So therefore it's important for my anesthesia and surgical colleagues to prepare ourselves um, to safely take care of our pediatric patients who might need more urgent procedures in the coming weeks and months. Um, the anesthesia work environment um, allows for numerous surfaces that can harbor droplets and serve as reservoirs for the virus um, if particular precautions or proper decontamination processes are not followed. Intubation and extubation are um, particularly critical time periods that pose the highest risk of exposure to anesthesia personnel from direct contact with these respiratory droplets. 
along with um, intubation and extubation. Um, other aerosol generating procedures um, include positive pressure ventilation via BiPAP or CPAP, and of course, mask ventilation, um, airway suctioning, high frequency oscillatory ventilation, tracheostomy, chest physiotherapy, and bronchoscopy. Um, as anesthesiologists, we are directly performing many of these procedures, obviously intubations and extubations, uh, but we're at least involved in the anesthetizing of many of the other patients for some of these procedures. So the following recommendations were taken from the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. It's a foundation that was formed to continually improve the safety of patients during anesthesia care by conducting safety research and education, encouraging patient safety programs and campaigns, and encouraging national um, and international exchange of information and ideas. The recommendations were specifically extrapolated from successes and failures um, in the curtailing of transmission of SARS in the past. So in general, when we're taking care of a patient that um, has suspected um, coronavirus um, or a confirmed case of coronavirus, we wanna limit the number of staff members that are involved to reduce the risk of unnecessary exposure. The cases um, should not be brought to holding areas like the preoperative area in the operating room. Um, a designated operating room should be allocated for such cases with signs posted to warn individuals um, from coming in contact. And recovery should be done in that operating room or in a, a negative pressure intensive care unit room. Uh, planning ahead in order for staff to properly apply their personal protective equipment um, and barrier precautions is a necessity. So our personal protection must be a priority, right? Um, frequent hand washing with alcohol-based formulas seems obvious, but is absolutely necessary. Our personal protective equipment should be available for all providers, and our departments should review the correct donning and doffing of the personal protective equipment. The CDC has a very nice poster on their website um, on how to properly apply and um, take off the personal protective equipment, and it's worth um, going to and, um, and checking that out if you're going to be wearing it. Disposable operating room caps, caps, beard covers, fluid resistant long sleeve gowns or our surgical gowns as we call them, goggles and full face shields um, are recommended for all the frontline medical staff at risk for exposure. Um, performing MAC intubation and extubations should be performed to identify barriers to the um, adherence. We want to try to avoid emergent or crash intubations where personal protective equipment cannot properly be placed or not placed at all. So in order to avoid these more emergent um, intubations, we want to lower the threshold for um, intubation of patients with respiratory compromise. Um, and because the risk of transmission with non-invasive ventilation like CPAP and BiPAP um, is such a high risk, the um, Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation actually recommends skipping that altogether and going directly to intubation in our patients with acute respiratory failure. And 95 masks at a minimum should be used for all known or suspected cases of coronavirus um, and asymptomatic open airway cases such as pulmonary bronchoscopy should also use the N95 mask. Um, the powered air purifying respirators provide um, an even superior protection and should, should also be considered if we could get our hands on them. <clears throat> As in any uh, general anesthetic, you want to apply our standard ASA monitors, which include a pulse oximeter, electrocardiography, and non-invasive blood pressure monitoring. 
um, the most experienced anesthesia professionals should be performing the intubations in order to secure the airway quickly. Um, unfortunately, we should probably avoid trainee intubations at this time. Um, awake fiber optic intubations should be avoided. When we're performing awake fiber optic intubations, you have to um, topicalize the airway. Um, and a lot of times, um, one of the methods of doing that is to use a nebulized um, local anesthetic or an aerosolized local anesthetic, and that should absolutely be avoided. If an awake fiber optic intubation is needed, there are other ways to topicalize the airway, um, but um, all in all, it should be avoided. And then, of course, consider using a video laryngoscope or a glide scope to improve the success in intubation on, on the first attempt. Um, Pre-oxygenation and denitrogenation of the lungs allows for increased oxygen stores and delays the onset of arterial hemoglobin desaturation um, during apnea. A rapid sequence induction involves the administration of um, an induction agent and then a neuromuscular blocking agent to create optimal intubating conditions, and it minimizes the time that the airway is unprotected. It also avoids um, having to use manual ventilation to keep the patient oxygenated. So um, it would avoid aerosolization of the virus from the airways, airways and is therefore the preferential method of securing the airway. Um, we also want to um, consider giving prophylactic antiemetics to reduce the risk of vomiting and viral spread. If we do need to do a manual ventilation um, in the event that the patient is decompensating, we want to do some small tidal volumes with a really tight mask, feel, uh, mask fit. Excuse me. And then once the airway is secured, um, a high-quality high heat and moisture exchange filter should be added to the breathing circuit. Um, it should be rated to remove 99.97% of airborne, airborne particles. Um, we'll use the double glove technique to um, immediately sheath the laryngoscope blade and handle, um, and then take all that airway equipment in a double Ziploc bag, remove it from the area for decontamination and disinfection. And then, of course, like I said, um, from the CDC website, um, reviewing the proper remo removal of the personal protective equipment um, is just as important as the application. So those are the recommendations for taking care of a patient with suspected coronavirus or in a positive case. What we're struggling with right now is what we actually do with these elective um, children who are completely asymptomatic. Um, just last night, the American Society of Anesthesiology, uh, Anesthesiologists released a statement saying that um, all cases done in the operating room should have anesthesia personnel wearing N95 masks. So I think we'll probably be moving um, to that. Some institutions are putting on full personal protective equipment and treating each patient like they have um, coronavirus. Um, and that's it. This is just a picture of what some people have um, sort of manipulated in order to protect themselves from respiratory droplets. He's uh, intubating underneath this um, clear plastic drape. And in Taiwan, we saw this recently, uh, this plexiglass sort of um, contraption over the patient um, to, of course, minimize the amount of respiratory uh, droplets and aerosolization. So they'll be coming up with stuff like this and maybe we'll be getting it at the, at the hospital. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Biello. <clears throat> I think we have uh, uh, ample time for questions. Uh, so if you can, if you write the question, I'll be able to read it and, uh, and, and we'll direct them either to Dr. Biello or Dr. Shriver. 
uh, to answer. Um, and I'll begin, uh, and by the way, we have, uh, we have uh, over 300 people online, so that's a, that's a pretty uh, it's a, a remarkable number for this. And so we, you know, let us know if this is working for you, you know, through email or, or text and communication, and we'll, we'll certainly continue to expand uh, all the information regarding to this pandemic. So the first question is um, from primary care, uh, and uh, well, some of these are, are, are not scientific, but can Connecticut Children's help advocate for payments on telehealth? Um, I can answer that is that that we are uh, we are currently using telehealth, and um, Medicaid Medicare has uh, has uh, Medicaid Husky in Connecticut has allowed for payments. Um, I think the uh, the private payers as well uh, have expanded so that they can actually uh, provide that, and and we can send out a communication to uh, to everyone that's online here. Uh, letting them know by the, the codes that they need to use for, for billing through uh, telehealth. There is a specific code you need to use and you can build that fairly readily. So uh, yes, you can. Um, the next one, uh, John, this would be for you. Uh, the question is, take out food safe. Does the virus survive in the refrigerator? Well, you know, it's a great question <clears throat> and I'm not sure the answer to that, but I can tell you what common sense uh, recommendations are. Uh, take out food. You don't go inside the restaurant to pick it up. It's left outside. Uh, you assume that the bag could be contaminated and you empty out the food into your plate and throw out all of the exterior materials and then microwave it. And that's the current recommendation for takeout food. Um, I can't tell you whether there's been a study to determine if coronavirus uh, lives in food. It's unlikely and uh, so far no CDC recommendation has shown transmission via food. Thank you. Uh, uh, Dr. Biello, and then we can help with this one. Can, can we test patients the day before surgery to determine if they, need, they have COVID-19? I think that the, um, the day before surgery, I think we wouldn't get the results um, back in time. So we have to just sort of screen them and they have been doing that. The um, preoperative uh, nurses have been calling patients and screening them for recent travel and fever and signs and symptoms of a URI. And that's, um, I think at this point, probably the best that we can do. Thank you. And, and we are uh, getting better at testing, but unfortunately we don't have uh, at least widely available the rapid test. Uh, I know it's, it's coming and if, if we're able to get it, I mean, that's something we would, we, we would do. Um, there's another question coming up. Um, uh, is it, is this for Dr. Shriver? Uh, is it possible for individuals to get reinfected with the virus? It's a great question. Um, the question to be reinfected with the virus. And we think usually not, um, but I would give the caveat is there have been a couple of case reports of individuals who are known to be COVID positive, and then weeks later developed symptoms and were COVID positive again. So clearly some people, um, uh, repeat infections are possible. Uh, in general, probably not. Remember also that coronavirus um, immunity is relatively short-lived. For the other coronaviruses we have, as they circulate the community, you're immune only for about 12 months. Uh, so. Uh, we don't fully understand that. It's a very good question. Usually no, is what I would say. Question from Adam Matson, uh, John, this would be for you. Is there any cross-reactive immunity between other strains of coronavirus and COVID-19? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> I only wish there was, but it's interesting. That was one of the early hypotheses as to why children weren't getting much of it, that they had a lot of coronaviruses circulating and 
So far, uh, it doesn't appear that that immunity is cross-reactive. It could be, but at the moment, most people um, feel that we probably don't have any population-based immunity to this pathogen. Thank you. And this could be for either one of you. So if the coronavirus is 120 nanometers and N95 masks protect down to 300, um, how are N95 masks going to prevent us from getting infected when exposed to COVID-19? Well, it's in droplets. I can answer that. It's in droplets. It's in droplets that are larger than that. And so uh, it, it, they work well. Um, there's some indication in very unusual circumstances there could be airborne transmission, but I, I don't think that's common and I don't think it's relevant. So uh, the droplets are much bigger and they will not go through those masks. Great. Um, the next one is um, well, child care is a very important component of the pediatrics. So since we do not know who's asymptomatic but potentially infected, would you recommend seeing these well children with or without surgical masks? You know, um, Juan and I have been looking at some other countries' approach to this, particularly the successful ones, Singapore and Hong Kong. And in those countries, the providers are wearing masks uh, for every patient. And I would say, I, I, I'm loath to have us have an unimmunized population in six months. Uh, you will start seeing H flu again. And so uh, I guess, um, and Juan, please kick in. This is, there's no right answer here. If a child is completely asymptomatic and due for immunizations and you have a day in which there are no other ill patients, every child is well and screened uh, and it's immunization day. If you wear a mask and the providers wear masks, I think the risks are relatively low, but they're not zero, to your point. And the challenge will be to make sure that no patient slips in who is ill uh, in that mixture. So many practices are not giving uh, routine well care right now and waiting uh, for the COVID, uh, the density of infections to drop. So there's no right answer. Juan, your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, uh, well, there, there's, uh, there's one, there are two answers. Uh, one, I wish we had enough protective equipment uh, so that we would use masks with every patient um, and, and the, you know, diminish the risk to, to less, than, less than it is right now, which is still low. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the situation in, in our country right now is that we don't have enough, enough masks. So we are prioritizing those, uh, the, the use of masks for situations where we may have somebody who has a respiratory illness. Um, and, and so it, that, that's the answer. Right? And again, in other countries, John, you made it very, you know, you very appropriately stated that um, in, 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 you know, in China, uh, in, in Hong Kong, uh, in, in many other places, they, uh, they, they routinely use the masks for everyone. And, and, uh, and there are a couple of health systems now here in the United States that have made it routine for every healthcare provider to take care of a patient. Uh, and, and again, it's the problem with that, and it's a, it's a logistic problem, is the number of masks you would have to go through in any given system may actually deplete the masks that need to be used for, for those that are actually higher risk. Um, so it's, it's a great question. Uh, I, I wish I had a great answer for you, but I don't. Juan, you know, I, I have another, can I add to that briefly? Uh, I think that um, it's also our jobs to make sure that we support shelter in place rules and if a family gets in a car for a well visit, we don't know the state of the parents and we don't know if they stopped on the way in. And probably as I think this through, it's just as well that we ask people to stay in place right now. We don't have the masks anyway, but we also need to support uh, the social distancing policies. Yeah, and I think for, you know, for the primary care pediatricians, which is a real big issue, 
um, we, we, we do have a, a responsibility. It's a tough one, but it's a responsibility that even in the, in the midst of the pandemic, um, the, the children that have the routine vaccinations before age 18 months, uh, there's going to be the, your vaccinations in two and four, six are critical. Uh, the you know, pneumococcal vaccines, uh, rotavirus vaccines, uh, uh, pertussis vaccines. And if we, if we miss that, that window, uh, we'll have an even more severe problem uh, in, in six months to 12 months uh, if we're not vaccinating them. So, so I'm, I sympathize with, with our uh, frontline personnel, not just in the, in the operating room or the, or, the, uh, or, or the emergency department, but also the pediatric group. You are frontline and you're seeing these kids. And so I, I, uh, you know, I admire you, your courage for actually doing that because there is a risk, of course, it's not zero, uh, but you're doing what you need to do to protect those children for, for future illness. Um, there, there are many other questions. I'll keep reading them as much as I can. Uh, uh, is there any, uh, we talked about cross protection. Um, uh, how will the pathways be updated to reflect community spread? Uh, John, that would be, that's, there are two about uh, updating our pathways in terms of testing. Yeah, I, mean, and I know there are things that are changing. Can you comment on that? I can. We, we have a fantastic crew that's literally looking at our pathways daily and updating them as needed based on new data and new recommendations. So it's a very dynamic process. We did push out a number of algorithms uh, the last day or so, and we are well aware these are interim and that they will probably change every day or so. So that process is, is well along. Yeah, and I, and I agree there, the, the testing, which you know, it used to be that everyone potentially would, would be tested. I think the, the CDC now is beginning to change that in, in areas with with high, uh, uh, high community spread. New York City would be one, one area so that uh, you may get a call from somebody that has a young person who's otherwise healthy, who has a, a high fever and chills and it might, it might in fact have COVID. And, uh, and the recommendation is not necessarily anymore in those high spread areas to come in for a test because you're gonna be overwhelmed. The, you, you will overwhelm the system by doing that. So the, the guidelines will continue to change and, and many individuals in, in those high, uh, highly endemic areas are calling in and the recommendation is to stay home, only come in if you're, if you're beginning to feel you know, really, really sick. And at that point, you would probably come into the emergency department. So it's, it's a tough thing to say, but it's just a reality. And it would be no different than what we'd be doing for influenza in, the, in, the, in community spread. Um, John, another uh, question and, and uh, also, uh, are pediatricians getting sick hospitalized? You know, I've not heard of that um, nationally. There are um, a number of hospitalized healthcare providers. I know of two from emergency medicine, front lines uh, type of exposure. I personally am not aware of pediatricians who have been hospitalized, but I, I'm not aware of all national data on that. Yeah, but you know, it is, it is a reality that for our frontline personnel from uh, anesthesiologists, otolaryngologists, uh, emergency doctors, uh, they, you know, that as, as, as good as we are with providing protection, uh, uh, unfortunately, this is, this is a reality. And so we do have to, you know, I emphasize, we got to take care of each other in this process. Uh, and we are very accustomed to take care of children and, and we do it all the time. We will continue to do it. But in that process, make sure you take care, take care of yourself and, and protect yourself as much as you can. Um, another question is, uh, it sounds wise to leave packaged groceries outside for one day. However, how do we counsel people to safely clean fruits and vegetables, which are, main, which are manhandled at stores? That's a great question. Uh, actually, a number of people have asked me this, and I, I will give common sense answer. I can't give you data. Someone cultured an apple, for example. I don't think that exists, but we know that it lives for three days on smooth surfaces and one day on fiber and paper. So 
you know, if you leave the bag outside for a day, uh, it's, you're not going to have any viable virions. Um, I think in terms of fruits and vegetables, you know, the CDC prior to COVID suggested that fresh uh, things like lettuce and uh, arugula, that you actually steam them and not eat them raw because there were so many uh, gastrointestinal transmitted diseases that during some of the E. coli outbreaks. Might not be a bad idea to steam those uh, uh, and uh, wash them in the sink and then wash your hands and steam them. Obviously, you're going to wash fresh fruits. Um, and uh, you're going to have to wash your hands afterwards. So I think common sense procedures um, need to be done. If you left any smooth surface fruit alone for three days, those are the data. The data suggests that uh, coronavirus will not survive on a smooth surface beyond that. Okay, thanks. Um, I think uh, steam arugula doesn't sound very good. So we'll we'll see. <laughs> I've had it. It's quite good. Well, yeah, I, I haven't. I think that would be a, a ban in my house. So. Uh, Okay, uh, if we're being used to reuse N95s, uh, how should we keep it clean or is there any way to clean this? And you, you wanna tackle yeah. this question maybe there? Um, in the operating room, so we have the N95 masks um, for all of our providers in the operating room. What we're being told to do right now is to use them five times and then you can dispose of them. The way that we keep them clean is after we um, place it, we actually put a surgical mask over it. Um, and then of course, dispose of the surgical mask um, in between patients. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. Um, Dr. Murray is one of our ENT surgeons and she has hers um, and was spraying it down with, <laughs> with an alcohol uh, spray bottle. It may work, I, I, I don't know, um, but she was, um, she was sort of doing that. But we don't have any, um, anything in place except to use a surgical mask um, over the N95 to keep it clean in case respiratory droplets would get on top of it. Use it five times and then dispose of it and, and get a new one. Great. Um, yeah, we just everyone has to get, get creative in, in so many ways. Um, let's see, let me go, if you can move up a little bit on those questions. Um, okay, um, I have been hearing there, there are two strains of the virus. Uh, this is from one of our Icelandic uh, colleagues. Uh, They're calling it strain S and strain L in Iceland. One is less serious. What have you heard regarding this? Uh, I've heard that there are multiple strains circulating now and there's several mutations. One, that's what I know. I don't know if you know more than that. Yeah, no, I, I think it, you know, it's, I mean, the data is beginning to, uh, to, to surface now. I mean, what, what I have seen is the, uh, obviously the, the clade that spread uh, in Wuhan is very specific. Um, you know, it was fascinating because 25% uh, of its genome had, had, you know, it, it was a modification that, that uh, was very different from SARS-1. And then some of the other uh, strains in, in the various populations have had mutations in up to 10% of, of at least the, the specific protein, which is really concerning, obviously. We, so we don't know yet. I think this is something we'll find out. And, and you know, why are some parts of the world uh, having such high mortality uh, beyond the epidemiologic factors? Is it a strain specific? Is it receptor uh, specific, uh, why, uh, you know, in, in Germany, uh, the mortality rate is very low. Uh, it's, uh, it probably resembles influenza, but yet you go to Italy and it's 9%. Uh, and those are things that we don't quite know yet. Uh, the FDA approved some tests that can diagnose corona in 45 minutes. How close are we to getting that? And if so, if that became available, could we plan to do elective surgical or interventional cases to stay financially afloat? Uh, you know, if it was available, there's no question, um, readily available, you'd probably use it for most patients prior to admission. You'd know whether they were COVID positive or negative and you could act accordingly. 
So I think you would be able to restart some of your elective programs. I'm not aware of when that will be available. Um, and I will tell you that unfortunately, since the adult world is so severely hit by this, um, you know, pediatrics uh, needs to get in line. And so we don't always get first dibs. Um, Juan, do you know if um, that is going to be readily available? Have you heard any, anything about it? I've not. Uh, no, I mean, uh, it's, uh, I think you listen to the same news conferences that I do, and, um, and, and it, it comes from a fearless leader, so I, I, I don't know what the answer is to that. Uh, we, we do know that here locally, uh, uh, for uh, at least for uh, the Yukon Health System, Hartford Healthcare, and Connecticut Children's, um, Jackson Labs has uh, started testing today, and uh, we will probably have a 12-hour turnaround time for that test. Um, but like any test, once, once it becomes available, then it, it overloads the system, and then the 12 hours becomes a, uh, a test that lasts four days. The actual test is not that complicated. It's really RT-PCRs and amplification. Normally that in two, three hours, you'll have something. Uh, it's just the volume and how quickly we get it back to the system that makes it, makes it difficult. But all, these are all great questions. Uh, and and we're, all, you know, we're all very cognizant of the, of the financial implications of this, but I think at this time, uh, our, pri our prime directive is safety, safety of, of our patients, of course, and then safety of our staff. And, and you know, the financial considerations will come. Somebody smarter than, than us will figure that out. And right now, we just have to you know, stay safe. The, the good news, I think, John, you can comment on this, is the, in terms of the epidemiologic uh, spread of this, you know, how, how long will it be, which is another question people have. You know, when will we see the, the, the shift in the curve? Uh, in China, it was two months. Uh, started in, in, in Wanzhou, China that I know started sometime in the middle of January. I spoke to my colleagues in China last week on Thursday. They, they stopped using uh, masks in the office uh, and they were opening their movie theaters. So it's a, it was a two month period. Can you comment on, on that process here in, uh, let's say Connecticut specifically, what, what do you think will happen in your best estimation? You know, Juan, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, I showed you earlier on in the slides, um, three scenarios, uh, one of doing nothing one is sort of our current pathway and one draconian, which China was able to do since it's, it's not a democracy the way we are. And um, I think we're in the middle there and, and a couple of months, if we stick to social isolation and the very aggressive moves that many states have made, I'm very optimistic that we would bend that curve in a couple of months. I think it's just all, it's all the numbers. Epidemiology really is mathematics. So you begin to reduce uh, all of the spread and over about two, it takes two weeks, everything's two weeks old, right? So two, three weeks from now, we would begin to see less new cases in Connecticut and other states that have really clamped down. And that's an indication we're, we're um, pushing that curve down. One of the challenges will be to sustain this very aggressive mode that we're in right now, of lockdown and don't travel and all the things that we're trying to do. And I think, I think in general, successfully, there are a lot of people who really are taking this very seriously. But it's going to be a few weeks till we see those results, and we need to sustain that behavior in the meantime. And, and there's a lot of radio static about that right now. But our message needs to be, you know, full court press. Let's sustain that behavior, and we will bend that curve down. Because China, it's just mathematics. Less transmission, you'll, you will see that curve coming down. A question for you. The, can you comment on reusing masks and how long is, is it relatively safe when using for asymptomatic patients? And I don't know, I don't think we know that, but any yeah, comments? I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but what we're doing um, in the CCMC operating room is reusing the N95 mask. They said five times, so I guess for five patients, um, and then disposing 
of it. And of course, like I said, covering it with a surgical mask um, and disposing that in between patients um, is probably the best thing we could do right now. We did get a shipment of N95 masks recently, um, but again, it's not something that I, I think we can, the resources are, are limited right now, so we can't just you know use them and throw them away uh, willy-nilly. Yeah, one of the uh, our adult partners have have uh, given us information of how many N95s you actually use, and when you do have when you do have a, a COVID nineteen patient in the ICU, uh, on any given day in at least in one hospital that we're going through, because those need to be obviously discarded when you have a confirmation and you're going into there, but they were going on any given day they could go through between fifty and eighty masks uh, a day. So you can imagine that if you think you have a thousand for the hospital and and you have two or three ICU patients, uh, it's going to be very difficult to maintain that. So that's why there are all kinds of creative ways that healthcare providers and health systems are, are, are trying to deal with this. There are many more questions. Uh, let, me, let me read a couple of more and then uh, we'll capture the questions, try to respond to them in a, a, electronically uh, later, later on. And John, I'll, I'll send some of these to you and maybe we can respond to them. They're really, really great questions. Um, social distancing seems, seems to be very effective for influenza and RSV. Um, is that the case? And will that translate into a similar effect with uh, COVID-19? That's a great question. You know, social distancing works well for respiratory viruses. So droplet borne separate the people out. They can't get exposed to the droplets and then they don't get infected. So the answer is yes, it should work here. And uh, again, the Chinese experience now also reflected in Hong Kong and Singapore would show that it's highly effective if you stick to it. So the answer would be it works for respiratory viruses. Thank you. Um, and an interesting question. Uh, there, there's some talk about the loss of smell and taste as a uh, symptom for people not obviously sick. Should we be using that as a screening question? It's a great question. I saw the same uh, you know, popular science news program last night. Um, <laughs> You know, it's interesting. Originally in adults, the, the, the knowledge was that this is not particularly an azopharyngeal pathogen. It's lung tropic, lower lung tropic. Yet in certain patients who seem to be COVID positive, obviously it's nasopharyngeal. So the answer is I don't know. Um, clearly it's being reported in COVID positive patients. So it's something we'd want to know. Um, there are no data in children. This was, as I recall, only in adults. Yeah, and uh, having suffered uh, anosmia with a previous influenza infection, I know it can happen. It's pretty troubling. Uh, fortunately, I got my my uh, uh, my sense back, though, so I can uh, taste the, the the wine and the coffee. Um, the the media is calling attention to non-cough fever symptoms, uh, first symptoms of diarrhea. Uh, what are the other key symptoms we may be missing by only focusing on cough and fever? Great question. Uh, I think it is a good question. As I mentioned earlier, and Juan just mentioned, some of the smaller children seem to have gastroenteritis with this. Uh, so we're, we're going to need to think of that uh, with kids who have sort of mild colds and gastro at the same time. Uh, I do think in children, it's more eclectic than it is in adults. So it appears that there are children with URI-like symptoms who are COVID positive and some with more classic dry cough. So it's more eclectic in children and we'll need to be vigilant on that. At the moment, in my opinion, we probably should assume that any child with a respiratory infection could be COVID positive. I think that's probably the way to approach it. 
I read on social media that an interfamily transmission is 80%. Is it truly that high? Well, actually, um, uh, recent data showed that if you do precautions interfamily and there's an individual who's positive, but everyone responds to that and wears masks and clean surfaces and washes their hands, you can reduce that quite significantly. So I think if you're talking about no one does anything in the family and all everybody's sick and you don't wash your hands, and the answer is probably that is 80%, but you can reduce that quite significantly in the family. And I remember seeing that uh, uh, it could even be 5% transmission with strict precautions inside the family. Christina, this would be for you. Uh, should PPE include hair covering for, for either either? Either uh, John, for you, you don't have to worry about yours, but uh, should should uh, should I? <laughs> Thanks, Ma. <laughs> it's always good. To appreciate the support. Um, I uh, and you know, I actually had a ponytail when I was in college, so I, I appreciate that. All right, I'm going to um, dig out a picture now. So. Yeah, um, you know, the CDC currently does not say you have to have hair covering uh, for routine care. Obviously, we're not doing that, and that's not something that's recommended. I'm not aware of transmission that's occurred from here. But when you're in the OR environment, in the anesthesia environment, obviously your hair has to be covered for other reasons uh, as well. And it is of course recommended. Now there are um, organizations that where they don't have any masks and stuff left and they're using full head covers because that's what they happen to have with a mask instead of goggles and things like that. But one, I'm not aware that head covering is routinely suggested as part of the PPE. Yeah, I think, I think one thing that is important, and, uh, and uh, some of the systems have asked that, it, at least for frontline healthcare providers, that uh, you know, beers should be, uh, should be uh, removed uh, during this time. And, and you know, one of our chief residents who had a very heavy beard uh, was, you know, uh, with, through great leadership, actually shaved his beard um, ahead of schedule. So that's something we certainly could do. Uh, there are many more questions. Is is nine o'clock, uh, and uh, we you know hang in there, gang. I know there there is a there are a lot of you in, in the primary care world now that are that are suffering through this. Um, you yourselves might have become infected. Your staff, uh, you have small offices. Uh, this is a, a lifeline for for everything you do, uh, and and it's hard. So so we we do understand that uh, we are together. We're in this together as much as we can. And, and I think we will, you know, we will continue to inform you. That's what we can do, give you straight answers. We, uh, you know, we'll be transparent in the process. Uh, you communicate with us. Let us know how we can be uh, better uh, for you in, in the community uh, as providers. Uh, and let us know if this type of, uh, of question and answer grand rounds uh, is helpful uh, uh, on, on the front lines for our surgeons, our anesthesiologists, our pediatricians. I think this is something that we will continue to do. So. Christina and John, thank you very much, and uh, Chris, uh, Dr. Fink as well for you know for uh, allowing us to do this grand rounds, and for the entire team here the, on the technical side that actually made it happen. Uh, let us know how this works, and we will continue to do it. So thank you again. Have a great day, and be safe. Bye bye.